Church, good to see you guys. Glad you're here. And we are one church that meets in more than one location. So if you're new here, every single weekend we have folks meeting out at our Stone Canyon campus as well as others who join us online. So if you would, put your hands together. Welcome them into our time of study here today. And most of you are probably aware that today is Super Bowl Sunday. So tonight... San Francisco 49ers take on the Kansas City Chiefs. And so I'm going to ask here, I'm going to take a quick little vote. I want to see who our church is for. I think I already know, but I just want to see who we're cheering for at tonight's game. First of all, have you guys got to watch the game? Let me see your hands, both our campuses. Okay, yeah, just about everybody. That's what I thought. Let's hear you. How many of you guys are going to be cheering for the 49ers? Okay, like five of you. Okay, awesome. How many of you guys are going to be cheering for the Chiefs? Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I figured. Well, it's probably going to be an awesome game no matter what. I'm looking forward to it. I always enjoy watching football. Now, I never played football growing up, at least not in any organized way because my parents wouldn't let me, but I did play a lot of Nerf football. I played a lot of pickup games in the backyard, uh, playground, whatever, neighbor's houses, and I loved to play Nerf football as a kid. Uh, and we went through, my brother and I, we went through a ton of these balls because, as you guys know, they're cheap. They're kind of like sponges that have, or they're foam with plastic coating on them, so they tear up real easy and you get slits in them and chunks out of them and all that good stuff. So we went through a ton of these, but we always enjoyed playing Nerf football. And one thing that was even more fun is when it would rain and we'd play in the rain because these balls, they collect water and so they get real heavy and you can dip them like in mud puddles and stuff. And nothing says fun like throwing just a mist of muddy water at somebody. It's great. And especially when you catch it and it's full of water, it'll get all over you. I mean, it's great. I remember on the playground we would play when it would rain or after it would rain and I would throw these at girls that I would like. It was my third grade way of flirting. Didn't work but still it was my third grade way of flirting and I've learned other techniques since then but uh, that really didn't pay off too well. But we used to play with these all the time and I just want to ask, does anybody want this ball? Anybody want it here? Chris's hand went up first but I tell you what Chris, I would get you but they made fun of me because I threw it to somebody like the second row in first service. So I'm going to try to get somebody in the back. So here we go. I'll tell you what, right, right here, uh, that's not in the back, it's midway so I'm going to be safe. If you want to stand up, so I get you. Go ahead and stand up. Everybody around you, watch out because I'm not good. Okay, so here we go. Are you ready? Oh, there it is. Not a great throw, but anyway, those things are hard to throw anyway, but she almost caught it. Thanks. You can keep it. That's, that's yours. But like I said, it was fun playing Nerf football in the rain, and I've got some water up here with another Nerf football. And after a while, these balls, they get saturated with water, they're soaked, and so they get heavy, they're hard to throw, and so what you need to do is you need to wring them out so that you can keep playing with them. Now, does anybody want this ball real fast? I'm kidding, that's a joke, come on, man, you people. Anyway, but you know, I think that this Nerf football is a great representation, great illustration of our hearts, seriously. Because just like this football absorbs the water around it, our hearts, they absorb what's around them. Our hearts absorb what they're exposed to. Our hearts are full of something. And whatever we expose our hearts to, that's what we're going to fill our hearts with. And right now, if I were to, figuratively speaking, squeeze your heart or my heart, what would come out? What would we see? Because your heart right now is full of something. And that's why the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 4, it says, above everything else, guard your heart. And there's a reason why we should guard our heart, because everything you do comes from it. 
In other words, the course of your life is set by your heart. Everything you do flows from your heart. And that's why the Bible says we should guard our hearts above everything else. Jesus says something very similar in Luke chapter 6. Look at what he says. He says, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Translation, what's in you will eventually come out of you. What's in you will eventually come out of you. What you fill your heart up with will eventually come out of you and be seen by others. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a biblical principle that I think we see over and over again in Scripture, but we especially see it in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's this. If you want to clean up your life, it starts with cleaning out your heart. And like I said, we see this theme all throughout Scripture, but we especially see it in the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're studying in this series. We're in the midst of a teaching series right now, which we're calling Majnik. And if this is your first week with us, you're probably wondering what this word Majnik means. But if you've been here, you know already we've been talking about it over and over again. And Majnik is just the word kingdom backwards. Because Jesus invites us to live a new way of life. And he refers to this new way of life as his kingdom way of life. He invites us to be part of his backwards kingdom. His upside down, inside out, countercultural, radically different kingdom. And his way of life that he wants us to live, it's very different from the world around us. And that's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says that we are to pray this prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Jesus says we should be praying for God's will to be done in our lives, in our hearts, as it is carried out in heaven. We should be praying for up there to come down here. And there's a reason why we should do that. Because when we look around at our world, the world we live in, it's pretty messed up. It's been messed up by sin. And up there, heaven, it's a place where there is no pride, there is no selfishness. Heaven is a place where there's no loneliness or emptiness. Heaven is a place where there's no gossip, no slander. Heaven is a place where there's no darkness, no deception. Heaven is a place where everyone feels valued and loved. Heaven is a place where God's peace and his joy, they overflow. And I don't know about you, but I want to live in a kingdom like that. I want to live in a place like that. I want to live a life like that. And what Jesus is letting us know is that we don't have to wait until we die to experience that life. Yes, that's when we'll experience the fullness of that life. But right now, God's kingdom can start to invade our lives in the present. And that's why Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 6, verse 33, seek the kingdom of God right now. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and God will give you everything you need. When you seek to live for his kingdom now in the midst of this corrupt and chaotic world, God will give your soul what it's longing for. God will give you what you need. He doesn't say that if you seek his kingdom that life will be easier. He doesn't say that if you seek his kingdom that you're going to get everything you want in this life. But he says you seek his kingdom first above all else and God will give your soul what it's looking for, what it's longing for. You will live a full, content life in him. 
And Jesus teaches us how to live that type of life in the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been looking at what this life looks like. And we're going to conclude this series, Mojic, next weekend. So you want to make sure you're going to be here because it's going to be a great conclusion. I can't wait for the topic that we're going to discuss. But you also want to be here for another reason. Because if you're here next Sunday you're going to get a free gift. I'm not kidding. Everybody that comes next Sunday to First Church, both our campuses, gets a free gift. It is our church t-shirt giveaway day. And every single person who comes here will get a free First Church t-shirt, and it's awesome. I've already seen the design. You're going to want it, but you have to be here to get it. So we don't want to hear any of that, well, I couldn't be there, but you got any extra? Nope, you got to be here. That's the rule, okay? So we want you to be here next Sunday, and if you, if you, if you are, you will get to hear the conclusion of our series but also you're gonna get a free t-shirt and I'm excited about next weekend but I'm also excited about what we're going to discuss today because even though today's subject material is a little bit heavier it's something that we all need to hear and it's something that I need to regularly hear so let's dive back into the Sermon on the Mount and we're gonna begin with one of the most in my opinion confusing verses in the Sermon on the Mount and it's found in Matthew 5 verse 17 look at what Jesus says he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, by the law or the prophets, what he's speaking about is the Old Testament law, the Old Testament books, okay? So the books of the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Really, Jesus? I thought you came to, like, set us free from the law, I mean, we know we've broken God's law. We all have. We've all fallen short of God's glory. I thought you came to set us free from it. Yet Jesus says here that he hasn't come to abolish the law but fulfill them. What's he talking about? Then Jesus goes on to say this. If you jump on down into Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these were the religious guys, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven there's that phrase again jesus says unless your righteousness surpasses that of the pharisees you can't be part of my kingdom you can't be part of Majnik. what's he talking about here who were the pharisees well the pharisees they were the legalists they were the guys who kept the letter of the law they kept god's regulations and rules to an extreme they were radicals when it came to keeping God's law so is Jesus here saying we've got to surpass that is he saying that we're saved by keeping God's law and keeping God's commands that's what brings us our salvation well Jesus can't be saying that because he says the exact opposite of that in other places and in fact the New Testament tells us the exact opposite of that if you look in the book of Galatians verse 2 it says I mean, chapter 2, it says, So we have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. So the Bible doesn't contradict himself. Jesus doesn't contradict himself. It's obvious Jesus isn't saying that we're saved by keeping God's law. So what is Jesus saying here? I think what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a deeper understanding of what God's law is really all about. You see, throughout the history of the church, there's basically been two camps when it comes to law and grace. First of all, there's been the legalist camp, which we mentioned these guys a second when we talked about the Pharisees. These are the people who believe they will be saved by keeping God's commands. So by keeping God's commands, keeping God's law, doing good works, that saves them. 
The problem is they kind of reduce following Jesus just a checklist of commands. And you can follow God's commands without your hearts being right. But then there's also another camp. And this other camp is what I like to call the cheap gracers. I get that from Bonhoeffer's term, cheap grace. And these are the people that have misunderstood God's grace to the extent that they say, you know, we're saved by the grace of God, so God's law really doesn't matter anymore. His commands, his instructions, his teaching, they really don't matter. We're just saved by the grace of God. It doesn't matter how we live. And what this leads to is lawlessness. And God is not a lawless God. And what Jesus came to do was to give us a different way, was to give us the perfect balance of grace and truth. And how he does that is by presenting a deeper understanding of God's law. See, sometimes when we think about laws and rules and regulations, what we think of is something that restricts us. And most of the time, that's what laws do. But oftentimes, they do it for a good reason. Let me give you an example of this. Just last night, my family, we were watching the Kentucky basketball game. I don't want to talk about it. It was a bad game. But we were watching the Kentucky basketball game, and we, we were really into it. And we weren't paying attention to our kids like we should have been for just a moment, and something happened. See, my kids, they like to jump on our couch. And we have told them over and over again not to jump on the couch because we're afraid they're going to get hurt. They'll lose their balance, fall off, have a hardwood floor. We're afraid they're going to hit their head or something like that. And our house is a lot of fun. I mean, we have dance parties all the time. Our kids jump around. We play basketball inside. I mean, we have a ton of fun at our house. But one rule, don't jump on the couch because we don't want them to get hurt. And yet, our kids continue to jump on the couch. And so we have to fuss at them and we have to discipline them and all that good stuff to teach them not to jump on the couch and they look at us like we're just awful when we tell them not to do that but last night we're watching the basketball game take our eyes off the kids just for a second Addie my little two-year-old she starts jumping on the couch and I turn around just in time to see her lose her balance she falls off the side of the couch and she hit her head on the hardwood floor and immediately she started to scream and cry. Alice and I ran over to her and we scooped her up. Alex is standing there, my six-year-old, and he's saying, I didn't do anything, I didn't do anything, I didn't do anything, because he was afraid he was going to get in trouble. And so we comforted her, made sure she was okay. She didn't even have a bump on her head. I think it scared her more than anything else. She was fine. But after she calmed down, Alice and I looked at Addie and we said, this is why we tell you not to jump on the couch. It's not because we're being mean. It's not because we're trying to rob you of having fun. We tell you not to jump on the couch because it could hurt you. And we want you to live the, le- the best life possible. Now we said that on her level, but I think that's what God is telling us. What he's telling us is, hey, I'm not giving you these laws and commands and instructions to rob you of having fun or to keep you from really living. I want you to live the best life possible. I created you. I created the world that you live in. And I know what good living looks like. I know what it takes. And so I'm giving you these boundaries to live within so that you won't wreck your life, so that you won't destroy your life, so that you can live the best life possible. What he's doing is he's warning us because he wants us to live the best life. It's the same reason why companies put warning labels on their products. 
to warn us, right? I don't know if you've ever paid attention to some of the warning labels on products, but several years ago, I bought a fire pit for our back patio, and I read some of the warnings that were on the label, and here are some of the warnings that were on my fire pit box. It's, first of all, it said, do not use indoors, and I'm like, well, duh. I mean, who wants to set their house on fire? Because that's how you're going to do it if you try to light that thing indoors. But here's something else it warned about. It said, do not use gasoline to start a fire. Now, if you're a pyro like me, that's a suggestion. You know, that's not an instruction. That's a suggestion. But I get why they tell people not to do that. So, okay. Here's another warning that the label gave. It said, close supervision of children is necessary. That makes sense. I mean, that's common sense, isn't it? But they put that on there because apparently there have been some problems in the past and they don't want to get sued so they have to put that on there and then here's one more that I saw on the label it said do not attempt to touch flame now again that's pretty simplistic it's common sense we get that but why do companies put warnings like that on their label it's because somebody has tried all this stuff and they want to prevent someone else from making the same mistake See, most accidents happen when we stop paying attention to warning labels. And that's what God's instructions are all about. God is giving us these warnings to prevent us from destroying, wrecking, harming our lives. Now, here's the thing. I struggle sometimes personally to keep rules because I think I know everything. I struggle sometimes to keep rules because I think I know better. And to follow a rule means I have to submit to someone else and say, that person knows more than me. And I don't like to admit that. But if you ask my wife, she'll tell you, I don't know everything. And sometimes I need instruction. Sometimes I need wisdom from someone who knows more than me. God created us. He gave us the knowledge that we have. He knows what life is really supposed to be all about. And when God comes to us and says, hey, this is how you need to live. These are the boundaries that I'm setting up for you. He's not being mean. He's doing it out of love. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is do we trust him? Because God is truly God who loves us and we love him and we believe that he has our best interest at heart. Obedience comes down to that question. Do you trust him? Because if you trust him, then you will not just listen to him, but you will do what he says because you know he loves you and he wants what is best for your life. See, here's the key to obeying God's commands. The key to obeying God's commands is doing it from the inside out. If you try to force yourself to obey commands just for the sake of obeying those commands, you're probably gonna fail. But if you understand the heart behind the lawgiver, if you understand the why behind the what, if you understand that God really does love you and wants what's best for you, you're going to pay attention to what he says. Every time I think about this, I think about my dad. Growing up, when my dad would tell me to do stuff, I would do it when he was watching because I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to be punished. I didn't want to be disciplined. So I would do what he said because I wanted to avoid punishment. Nowadays, now that I'm, you know, older and have my own house and family and all that, and I live 12 hours away from him, every now and then he'll still want me to do something for our family or just me personally. He's on me all the time to go for a doctor's checkup and all that kind of stuff. You know, he tells me to do stuff anyway, even though I'm not under his roof anymore. And you know what? I want to obey my dad. You know why I want to obey my dad now? It's not because of fear of punishment. 
Now, he always says that he could still drive out 12 hours to Oklahoma and he could still discipline me if he wanted to. I mean, he tells me that, and I'm not going to put him to the test, honestly, but that's not the reason why I want to obey him now and honor him. It's because I love him. And I've learned over the years, my dad really does have my best interest at heart. He's a lot wiser than I am. And that's the same case for when it comes to our God. When, when following God's instructions comes from the inside out, when it grows from our love for him, then all sorts of new life are made possible to us. And so every now and then we have to open up the lids of our hearts and check them to make sure they are where they need to be and to make sure that our hearts are in sync with his heart. And that's what Jesus gives us an opportunity to do in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Jesus will give us six statements. And in these statements, he uses this phrase. He says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. Basically, this is what the world tells you. This is what the culture tells you. This is what you've always heard. But this is what God wants you to know. And he gives us these six statements so that we can examine our hearts and make sure that we are following God out of the right, from, from our hearts, out of, with a right heart. And look at what he says in these six statements. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. Jesus says, that's the command. But then he goes on to say, what I really want to talk about, though, is the anger deep within you. Because the reason why people murder is due to the anger that's deep within their hearts. Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But what I want to talk about is the lust in your heart. Because the reason why people commit adultery is because there's lust in the human heart. You've heard it said that if you want to divorce your spouse, present them with a certificate of divorce. But what I want to talk about is having deep faithfulness, having a deep commitment to your spouse. You've heard it said do not swear, do not make an oath. But what I want to talk about is having integrity that goes to your core. You've heard it said, seek proportionate revenge. You know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But what I want to talk about is forgiveness, not revenge. You've heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But what I want to talk about is loving everyone, even those who can't love you back. And what we have on this side is the letter of the law. This is the command. This is the instruction. But what we have on this side is the heart of God. The reason behind the command. The reason behind the instruction. And what Jesus is trying to let us know is the reason why we don't keep these commands is because we're trying to keep them oftentimes just for the sake of keeping them. And we fail when we do that. What he's trying to say is you need to understand the heart of God. You need to capture and share his heart. And when you do, it will keep you from getting here. And so what I would like to do today is talk about how we can reflect God's heart. Because I believe that's our purpose. That's what it means to be part of his kingdom. That's what it means to be part of Majnik. Our lives should reflect God's heart every single day. And so like I said, every now and then we have to lift the lid of our hearts and examine them to make sure that they're in sync with his. And so what I want to do is pull out three of the examples that Jesus gives in that list that we just looked at and see what Jesus is really talking about. And I want us to examine our hearts to make sure that they're where they need to be. And so the first example that I want to bring up is what Jesus says in Matthew 5 verses 21 through 22 when he talks about murder and anger. And look at what Jesus says. He says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. 
But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So Jesus starts off and he says, hey, you've heard it said do not murder. And Jesus says that, I feel pretty good about myself. You know why? Because I think I can probably get through the day without killing anybody. I feel pretty good about myself. Do not murder? Good, yeah, I can do that. Cool, Jesus. But then Jesus goes on to say, but what I really want to talk about is the anger you have in your heart. And when Jesus says that, I get a little nervous. I get a little worried. The word anger that Jesus uses in this passage is the word that means to become so frustrated with someone else that you now see that person as worthless, that you see no value to their lives, that they're just a waste of a life. And in fact, that word rocket that he uses actually means empty, waste, good for nothing. It was a name. It's like name calling. It's a name that people would give to people who they thought were good for nothing. And Jesus says you should see no one like that. That's why he also says don't call anybody a fool because a fool questions someone's mental state and their personal intelligence. Both of these terms were used to tear people down. They cut to the very essence of a person's worth. And Jesus is saying don't do that. That's what anger does. Anger cuts at the very essence of a person's worth. And Jesus says that is the exact opposite of God's heart. See, God sees value in everyone, even those who have rebelled against him, even those who have hurt him, even those who are ignoring him. God sees value in every single life, and so should we. And when we start to harbor anger in our hearts, not only is it a ticking time bomb that will eventually go off and cause us to do something that we will later regret, whether it's murder or something else, it will cause us to do something that we later regret. It also does something else. When we harbor anger in our heart, we don't have the relationships with people that we should have, and so we're not able to live out the mission and the purpose that Jesus has given us to go out and show everybody the love of his Father. That's why in that list that we just looked at a second ago, I think that's why Jesus includes these last two statements, and we're not going to go into great detail talking about them, but he says, you've heard it said, seek proportion of revenge. I tell you to forgive, not to seek revenge. He says, you, you know, you've heard it said to love your neighbors and hate your enemies. I tell you, love everyone, even those who don't love you back. Who does that? Who loves their enemies? Who prays for those who persecute them? Who does good to someone who never returns good back? No one in our culture. But Jesus says, when you do that, not only will you impact that person's life, but everyone else around you will notice and you will change the culture around you. You will be a difference maker in this world. He said murder and violence and hatred, those things all start in the heart. And it's funny to me that we have all these laws on our books, you know, in our government, our country today. We have all these laws on the books that are meant to prevent violent crimes, and yet we continue to have violent crimes year after year after year after year. And some people would say they're on the increase. Why? We've got all these laws that tell us not to do it. Because a law only goes so far. It's a heart issue. Now, we need laws. Don't misunderstand me. Laws are good, but they only go so far. It's not until the heart has changed that people want to then obey and do what's right in God's eyes. 
That's one example that Jesus gives. Now, Jesus gives us another example in Matthew 5, verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this is a tough one. This is a sensitive subject. I know that's why when you, uh, when you were listening to the host prior to the sermon, you heard, hey, this is a PG-13 message because this is a sensitive issue. And it's uncomfortable for some people to talk about, but I think we need to talk about it because Jesus talks about it. We don't skip over his truth. He gives us, again, these instructions for a reason because he loves us. And I just want to be transparent with you. I grew up in the church, and growing up in the church, I kind of equated in my own mind sex with sin. For me, growing up, sex and sin were in the same category. There really wasn't a difference that's the impression that the church gave me because you just didn't talk about sex in church. It was a dirty, taboo subject. You just didn't talk about it, and you didn't talk about it in various contexts where probably you should talk about it. Instead, where you heard about sex was on the school bus or in the locker room. You just didn't talk about that stuff in settings like this. But the Bible doesn't say that sex and sin are the same. In fact, the Bible says the exact opposite. See, God created sex. And he created it for our good. He created it as a building block of humanity, as a a building block for humanity so that we can procreate and so that humanity can continue to advance. But also he created it for our pleasure. He created it for our enjoyment within the marriage relationship. God created it and because he created it, it's good. Sex was God's idea. And that's why I want to plainly state this morning that sex is a gift from God. And it's a good gift. But it's also a gift that can be misused. And when it's misused, it can be very destructive. And that's why God in his word gives us boundaries for sex. Because he wants sex to be all that he designed it to be for us he wants us to be fulfilled and satisfied within within our sexual experience but in order to have that you've got to do it within the boundaries that he has established and by giving us these boundaries God isn't being mean he isn't trying to rob us of having fun He loves us, and he doesn't want for us to bring destructive behavior into our lives. And that's why, as a church, we stand on the boundaries that God has established. We're not trying to be mean. We're not trying to be old-fashioned. We just trust God. And we believe he knows what's best, and we believe he loves us. So we trust what he says about sex, and Here are the boundaries that God has established. Jesus affirms them in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus says, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Guys, that is sexual language um, in every language, whether it's Hebrew, Greek, or uh, English. That is sexual terminology. You guys know what I'm talking about. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. 
See, Jesus here affirms a biblical framework, boundaries for sex. And anything outside of these boundaries is against God's will. What are are those boundaries? Sex is to be expressed between a husband and a wife in marriage. Those are the boundaries that God has established. And anything outside of that is outside of God's will. Whether it's polygamy or pornography, whether it's college students hooking up and having friends with benefits or high school students sending inappropriate pictures through texting, whether it's consenting adults sleeping around or having inappropriate conversations through Tinder messaging, whatever it is, if it's outside of the relationship that a husband and wife have in marriage, it is outside the boundaries that God has established. So what does that mean? It's not good for us. Because it lacks God's presence and it lacks God's promise. Now the world, our culture will tell us that anybody who stays within the boundaries that God has established is sexually oppressed. But secular research tells us otherwise. Secular research tells us that those who have the most frequent sex and the most satisfying sex are those who are in a committed marriage relationship. It's as if God knows what he's talking about. And that's why in Proverbs chapter 6, talking about sexual sin, the Bible says this, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? And we know the answer, it's no. Just ask anyone who has lost their family or lost their marriage or lost their career or lost their reputation because of sexual sin, and they'll tell you just that. Just ask Matt Lauer. Ask Tiger Woods. And they'll tell you the same thing. Now, here's the thing. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody because we've all made mistakes sexually, myself included. We've all done things that we regret. We've all done things that we wish we hadn't done. We've all made mistakes sexually. And if that's you, I want to be the first to tell you because I know from experience There is hope for you. There is healing for you. And God loves you. And that's the point of this passage. Jesus is trying to get us to understand that he can remake our hearts. Yes, sexual sin may have tainted and polluted and corrupted our hearts, but he can remake our hearts. Look again at what he says in Matthew 5 verse 28. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's a heart issue. And he's telling us, if you will turn your heart over to me, I can remake it. But we've got to be willing to give our hearts to him. Now, what Jesus isn't saying here, Jesus isn't saying that, you know, we shouldn't put up physical boundaries to keep us from lusting or whatever. That he's not saying we shouldn't put up, you know, filters on our phone or computer or whatever. Or we shouldn't have accountability parties. He's not saying that all that stuff is good to put up those physical boundaries. But what he's saying is it all goes back to the heart. Until you give God your heart, you're going to struggle with this. And that's why he, had, he addresses the issue of lust here. He really doesn't talk a lot about adultery. Now, we all know adultery is wrong. Nobody denies that, Right? But what he's talking about here is lust because he knows that lust is the source of so many other destructive behaviors because lust is selfish. Lust is always selfish. Lust uses people as objects for our own selfish gratification and desires. 
And that's why, whether it's porn or it's sex outside of marriage or before marriage, what that stuff does is it warps our minds so that we have a misunderstanding of what God intended sex to be. Jesus calls us to live in a world where we don't use people, but we love people. And that's why he wants us to get rid of lust because lust uses people, whether it's a picture of someone or whether it's acting it out with someone else. It uses people. And we're called to love people, not use people. And so we're here for you as a church. We're not a church that judges anybody or condemns anybody. We are a church that points people to Jesus. And Jesus has the ability to change anyone's heart. And you give your heart to him today. I'm telling you, he can remake it. He'll do just that. Now there's one more example that I want to point out from Jesus' teachings. It's found in verse 33. Jesus goes on to say, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the, to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now changing gears here, but Jesus here is talking about his integrity, integrity that goes to our core. A lot of times when people read Jesus' words here, what they think he's saying is that, you know, we need to make sure we just don't take an oath or swear. And I've even heard people say, you know, if I was ever elected president of the United States, I couldn't take the oath of office because Jesus says not to take oaths. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus here is talking about is live in such a way that no one ever has to question the integrity of your words. I was speaking to a college professor one time, and he said, Chad, every student cheats. Maybe not in every class, but at some point in their college career, every student cheats. If the cost is high enough, every student will cheat. And what Jesus here is saying is not so with you. You know why? Because that's not God's heart. And it's not just that's not God's heart. When we use deception and we lie, not only does it hurt our witness so that no one trusts us, it gets to the point that it affects our own hearts and we don't trust anybody else. And we struggle to be vulnerable with people. Jesus, you need to have integrity to the core, to the point that no amount of swearing, no amount of oaths, no amount of cross my heart and hope to dies will ever add any value to your word. That's the type of integrity that Jesus asks us to have. But why is it that we lie? Why do we use deception? I think it's for two reasons, and they're both heart issues. First of all, we lie to promote ourselves. See, we're not comfortable in the identity that Jesus has given us, so we lie to pump ourselves up. We promote ourselves. And Jesus says, just be comfortable in who I've made you. You don't have to lie to promote yourself. Why else do we lie? We, we lie to protect ourselves. Because when we get caught doing something wrong, we are masters of making a bad decision even worse or a bad situation even worse. We lie to cover up our sins and our mistakes when we should be turning those things over to God and knowing that he's the one that can redirect our lives. He's the one that can heal us and that he still loves us even when we do make mistakes. But we lie to protect ourselves. And here's the thing. Jesus says your integrity should go so deep that you don't have to worry about that stuff, and that's a heart thing. 
I was talking to another college professor that actually teaches at Abilene Christian University, and he said that years ago they had this guest speaker come. He was the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company, and they asked him to come and talk about success. And he got up on the stage, and the first words out of his mouth were these. He said, if you want to be successful, here's the secret. You have to have integrity. And all the students are nodding their heads like, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you want to be successful? You've got to have integrity. Yeah, that's great. And this college professor that I was talking to said he immediately put his head down and he thought that guy won't recover from that statement because what he had he just done, that guest speaker had just said, hey, the reason why you have integrity is to be successful. You see, anyone can have integrity when it leads to success. The question is, will you have integrity when it leads to the cross? And that type of integrity starts in the heart. There's a reason why the Bible says, Proverbs 4.23, above everything else, guard your heart because everything you do comes from it. What's in us will eventually come out of us. And if you want to live the best life, the life that God intended you to live, it starts with cleaning out your heart of all that toxic stuff that this world has offered to you and replacing it with God's character replacing it with his heart. I've got a picture up on the screen of Stuart Moffat. He lives in England, and here's a picture of him with his two daughters. They went to an Easter egg hunt at their church, and what they didn't realize is that the place where they were holding this Easter egg hunt was a former World War II battlefield. And one of his daughters, his three-year-old, picked up a live hand grenade and put it in her Easter basket. And they went home that afternoon. They were going through all the eggs and candy and stuff, and they found this live hand grenade. So immediately, Stuart, he called the police. They called the bomb squad, and they detonated this hand grenade in their backyard. Here's a picture of it. And the girls thought that was really cool, but it would not have been cool if Stuart, the dad, hadn't caught it first because his girls were carrying around something very destructive and dangerous, and they didn't even realize it. Guys, this world will promise us the moon and say, hey, Live this way and seek after this and have this in your life. And if we're not listening to God, we're going to be carrying around a ton of destructive stuff in our hearts that is eventually going to explode and wreck our lives. So listen to God. Get rid of all that toxic and destructive stuff and instead do what Paul tells us to do in Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. What's Paul telling us? Stop focusing on what the world focuses on. Fill your heart with God's character. Let him replace your tainted heart with his. And when following Jesus grows from the inside out, all sorts of new life will be made possible to you. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today and this chance we've had to open up your word and study it. And even though we talked about some heavy subject material today, Father, it comes from your word and we trust you. You've given us these boundaries in life, not to be mean, but because you love us. You want us to live the best life possible. We acknowledge that this morning as a church And we just pray that we can can continue to seek your will for our lives. May heaven come to earth in us through our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.